Welcome back. Our third in the series through Romans chapter 8. And I want you to think about the last, the last movie that you just watched. I'm not sure what it was. But think of the last movie that you just watched and think if there was some element of conflict in it. Maybe there was um, some good versus evil within that. A group of people, maybe two people. And the old cowboy movies, there was the guy with the black hat and the guy with the white hat. And you knew who was the good guy and you knew who was the bad guy. Things have gotten a little more nuanced nowadays. But what makes a great story is conflict between good and evil, between the forces of, of right and wrong, and most of the time in Western stories, anyway, our, our culture tends to, the good guys win, at least in the end, and they all lived happily ever after, and that kind of thing. And it, we, we are drawn to that kind of story, and there's elements of that, because this is our story. We live this story. This is the human story. This is the story from the beginning of history, where the first people of the Bible, we see people struggling with their choices between good and evil, between life and death, between serving the needs of the flesh or serving the desires of, of the Spirit, which is life and peace. The Lord said to the first man and woman, if you eat the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And then there was the serpent that said, did God really say, really, you're not going to die, really? I mean, is that what he said? And then in the next chapter, there's the first brothers, Cain and Abel. Abel offers something to God, and God looks at it with favor. Cain offers, gives an offering, and God doesn't favor him, and he's angry. He gets upset. And in verse 6 of Genesis 4, the Lord asked Cain, Why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. You must subdue it and be its master. This is interesting, isn't it? Long before Jesus ever walked the earth, long before the Spirit was given as an indwelling presence for every believer, here's God coming alongside a man trying to talk him from destroying himself. The Spirit is luring him off into death and anger and sin and darkness. But God's trying to talk somebody off a ledge, off of being self-destructive. Have you ever been there? Have you ever tried to talk someone out of self-destruction? However severe. There was a story several years ago. In 2008, uh, the, the TV show 60 Minutes aired a story in, uh, in England uh, about a, a story of two sisters, twin sisters, 40 years old, and uh, they were in the middle of, in the median between four lanes of traffic going in either direction. And these security cameras caught these two wandering down the middle of one of Britain's busiest highways. And there are people calling the authorities saying, these women are in danger, they're, they're flagging down cars, they're doing stupid things. Anyway, the police get there and they pull these women out of the median, off of the road, trying to question them. And all of a sudden, one of them just runs straight into four lanes of traffic. And she gets pummeled by the semi-truck, just basically hits 
her and rolls her under all kinds of, of tires and weight. And people are freaking out. The police are trying to stop the traffic. They're trying to get to her because she's severely injured. They don't know if she's dead. And in the middle of all the police trying to get the traffic to stop, the other sister does the same thing, just shoots right out in front of a car. She rolls up on the hood, smashes the windshield, cracks her head, and then the car stops, she rolls off onto the pavement, and she just lies there. They threw themselves into traffic. So the law enforcement officers, they get the traffic stopped, they're, they're trying to figure out, but fortunately, both of these women are still alive. They're still breathing. The, the second one is unconscious, but after a few minutes, she comes and wakes up, and with almost superhuman strength, she gets up and starts to walk and the, the police officers are trying to get her to calm down to get her into the ambulance but she wrestles away and punches one of them jumps the guardrail into the opposite four lanes of traffic and just runs tries to run straight out of car fortunately the traffic was not as running as fast people were going a little slower you know how they rubberneck trying to figure out what's going on and they, she does not get struck by a vehicle. The officers were able to subdue her, and it took four of them to get her strapped onto a gurney and into the ambulance to take her and her sister to the hospital. They were intent on ending their own lives. This is a literal and extreme version of what some of us go through at times in our own life, whether it's us throwing ourselves in the traffic we're trying to keep someone from self-destructing. Those who have addictions understand this dramatically. They have addictions to substances, whether it's opioids, alcohol, or drugs. They have addictions to behaviors, whether it's gambling or pornography or eating or impulsive spending. And they know what this is like. They know what it sounds like. They know the sound of sin crouching at the door. They're fearful. They feel helpless. It's like an invader you can't defend against. It's an enemy that you can't fight. It's just a matter of time. And they know the struggle, and they know the shame, and the guilt, and the self-hatred, and the self-fulfilling prophecy of giving in to that addiction. For others, the beast at the door of your heart takes a little, well, a little less or lesser form with more mild repercussions. It's almost the, the petty, pesky kinds of sins that almost are defended by some people. They just say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. That's just kind of how I am. You know, take me or leave me. That's all. And that we give ourselves an awful lot of wiggle room uh, to rationalize and tolerate sins that seemingly don't have immediate consequences. But even then, there is a nagging from the Spirit that's, if we're listening, we'll hear sin is crouching at the door. Don't open it. Our text today is Romans 8, verse 12, and I'll read through verse 17. It says, Therefore, so then, brothers, we are debtors. We have an obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to de if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we have an inheritance, an inheritance from God and fellow, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. We have a debt. We have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature. Our implied obligation is to the Spirit. That's our master. He is our master. By faith, we place our trust in Christ for not only forgiveness of sins in our eternal home, but we pledge allegiance to him in obedience out of love for his love for us. We follow his commands. And the example that Jesus sets for us, this is our obligation. This is our debt, not to the sinful nature. And he makes it very clear. If you live according to the flesh, if you live according to the desires of the sinful nature, you will die. Death spiritually, death relationally, death eternally. And he's speaking to Christians here. This is Paul talking to the Christians in Rome. For those who are in Christ... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but if you turn away from the ways of the Spirit and live according to the deeds of the flesh, well, it it reflects Hebrews 10, verse 26, where it says this, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there is no longer sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? See, in the Old Testament, any law of Moses was, was broken, you could get two or three witnesses and, and testify against somebody, and they were found guilty. How much more than someone who consistently and persistently turns away from the Christ that suffered for them, tramples underfoot the Son of God, profanes the blood of the covenant, and outrages the Spirit? This is some pretty severe language. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, here's the good news, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds done in the body, then, then you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death this word mortify, it, it is not just a one and done kind of thing. The verb tense in this, if you, you put to death, is a continuous process. It takes every day, every hour, sometimes every minute to put to death the misdeeds of the body, the things done in the body, it's sin. It's a mortification of our sinful nature that happens. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. As one commentary put it, if you do not kill sin, it will kill you. This is not a game. As we emphasize the Spirit's voice, as we give him influence and more room and more power in our minds and in our hearts and in our actions, sin's pull isn't quite as strong. Sin can be mastered, 
at least that particular sin, you can get to the point where it's not even an issue anymore. It can be conquered by the Spirit. And I have to emphasize our willing submission to the Spirit's power in this process. It's not our own willpower that does it. It's not our own strength. The other day I saw a friend on, on Facebook post, she, she put, um, Satan, leave my family alone. And it, it was most likely the prayer, it's a prayer request, it's a re- request for encouragement from other friends, but it reminded me that our battle against evil is best fought by paying more attention to Jesus than to talking to the enemy. I mean, by the Spirit's power, I conquer temptation best by ignoring it, by not giving it any room, by not yelling at it. The best way to say no to the devil is by saying yes to Jesus, not by trying to wage war and argue with Satan on your own. That's a dangerous thing. For the Christian, death has no power. There's no condemnation because of sin. The penalty of sin has been paid through the cross of Christ, but we still deal with the presence of sin in our everyday life. And the best way I know how to illustrate this is telling you a story about some poison ivy on a tree next to our house. When we moved into Galesburg, Kansas in 2005, there was on the east side of the house a line of trees And on one of the trees grew a poison ivy vine like none I'd ever seen. This thing was huge. And it grew to the very top of this 35, 40-foot tree. It was massive. And the trunk of the poison ivy vine was as big around as my arm. It was, it was, it had overtaken the tree. And I didn't really want my kids playing on that side of the yard where all of this poison ivy was. And so an elder from the church came and he brought some, some tools and, and some weed killer and all that kind of stuff. And we took it, we tried to dig that thing out and we cut it off at the root and we reached as far as we could, got a stepladder and we cut off the vine off of the trunk of the tree and pulled all that stuff off of there. And we, we poured some I don't know, turpentine or something on the, on, the, on the root and killed it so it wouldn't come back. But all of that poison ivy was still up on that tree. And it was still green. The root had been killed, the trunk taken out, but the effects of the poison ivy, if you know anything about poison ivy, it doesn't stop being poison just because the root's been cut. All through that summer, the leaves dried up, they got brown, started to become brittle, the next summer, just a little stick started falling into the yard. Every time there was a stiff breeze, more of it fell off the tree. The next summer, it's still dead up there. And every time there was a storm, more of it broke off and fell to the ground. Listen, that poison ivy was dead. There wasn't anything growing anywhere in that tree. It was completely dead, but the effects of that poison ivy were still very much there. Anything falling still had that sap in it enough that it could, it could cause some, you know, some real irritation had my children started picking those sticks up. And it's funny that it's the storms that bring down and bring out the sin. It can have one of two effects. A storm of life 
a, a trial, some kind of tribulation or a problem can either bring out sin and its effects on other people, or it can eliminate the sin from us. It can purge us of it. It can clean us out because of the suffering. And I think that's more of the Jesus way. The Jesus school of suffering eliminates sin from our lives. It's the storms that bring it out. It's the storms that shake all that stuff out of us so that we're, we're not encumbered by it anymore and we can deal with it and eliminate it. Look, Paul tells them that there's, there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ. In verse 9, he says, you're not controlled by your sinful nature. Stop acting like it. And in verse 15, he said, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery again to fear. That's not who you are either. What did we, re- what did we receive? We received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's that Aramaic term of that little kids would, would give uh, when their daddy walked into the room. And we have the privilege and the right given to us to call our Heavenly Father, the God who made all things, Daddy, that term of love and endearment. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's not only assuring us our sins are forgiven, he's not only assuring us of our heavenly home, he's, not, he's, he's, our, he's giving us a reminder of who we belong to, whose family we're in. We belong to God. We're not his property. We're not even his slaves. Jesus called his disciples his friends. And he calls us his children. Adopted, chosen, dearly loved, but given full rights as children, even by birth, by a new birth, brought into the family. It doesn't get any better than that. I don't know if you feel like you have that kind of relationship with God. Maybe you feel like he, you're the redheaded stepchild that gets the army caught in the, in the cellar and he gets the scraps off the table. That's not who you are. You may have to deal with some poison ivy vines that need to be shaken out of your, out of your life, but you, you are a child of the king. Stop feeling like you're just a run-of-the-mill slave and God is somewhere off in a mountain palace somewhere and he doesn't want much to do with you. That's not the good news. That's not the relationship that we're told we have with the Creator. The Holy Spirit agrees with our spirit that we are His children. You ever have that just that sense of peace within you? Yes, Holy Spirit, I agree with you. You are mine. I am yours. We are we're one. We're united in thought and in heart and in mind. We're chosen. We're adopted. And the logical conclusion is clear. We're children of God. And if we're children, then we have an inheritance. Because what father doesn't give his child an inheritance? And that inheritance from God, we're fellow heirs with Christ. An inheritance only comes in this life from a person who's dead. But God never dies. So how does that work? Well, I think it's more of just a relationship. It's, it's more of a family role with all the honor and all the reward and all the good stuff that comes from being in the family. It's, it'll be given to us. If, if. It's all good until we get to the end of verse 17, isn't it? It's life and it's peace and it's adoption and it's father and it's inheritance and it's Christ and it's glory. If, of course, we suffer with him. 
so that we can be glorified with him. This is where people start to walk away. This is where you might be tempted to turn off the video. Recently, I heard a teaching from Mark Moore, one of my professors at Ozark. He said, um, we speak of Christ's resurrection as a precursor to our own resurrection. And that's true. But when we speak of the cross of Christ, suddenly it's just his cross. But Jesus was absolutely clear that if we're to follow him and be his disciples, we take up our cross daily and follow him. He said the life of a disciple, one who follows him, would be marked by self-denial. People would hate us because of who he is, and we would love them anyway and pray for those who persecute us, and somehow we behave as if God should protect us from all discomfort and all disease and all disaster. And people say, well, if God is love, then why am I suffering? And that's the tantrum of a toddler, not the mark of a mature believer. Sometimes we suffer just because consequences of our own rebellion. But sometimes it's not anything we did. Other times we suffer just because we live in a world that's broken. And we got caught in the crossfire somewhere. And sometimes we suffer because God allows things to happen. And we, we, we are enrolled in the school of suffering with Jesus. And it forms in us a contentment, and it forms in us a gratitude. It forms in us a sense of patience and compassion for other people. Look, if we want the glory of Christ following in the ways of Christ, it makes perfect sense that we have an opportunity to suffer as Christ. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Who are we to think we get a pass? I mean, that would be like if you were given a position as a freshman in high school on the varsity team. I mean, very few people actually get to do that. As a freshman, you walk onto the varsity team and you're a starter. But you won't show up to practice. You won't do any conditioning. You won't go to the camps. You won't do drills. You won't work out. You want the position and you want the glory and you want the time on the field or the court, but you won't put the sweat time in. You won't put the prep time in. And you know what's going to happen when the coach actually puts you in to the match or to the game. You know what's going to happen. Everybody from the stands is watching. All your teammates are wondering, and you will be shown for who you are. You've never read the playbook. You haven't run a lap. You haven't lifted a weight. You haven't perfected the skills. The enemy, the opposing team, will take every advantage of your weakness and will drive you toward failure. Elsewhere, In Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I say, amen, Paul. I want to to know Christ and the power of his resurrection too. And he says, but I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Did you notice the flow there? He wants to know the resurrection. But he also wants to be in fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, then to attain to resurrection. There is no path to resurrection apart from suffering. There is no path to resurrection apart from death to self. 
This is the way of Jesus. In Paul's understanding, the way of Christ is a way of suffering, but it's also a path to glory. I know I went to verse 17, but I have to give a sneak peek to verse 18, which says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Look, I I know that people are hurting now. I, I know there is pestilence out there. I know that there are people hurting economically. I know there are family tensions that have escalated because of this quarantine issue. I know that there is warfare and human trafficking. I know there is forced prostitution, and I know that there is all kinds of disease. But these present sufferings are not worth comparing. They don't hold a candle to the glory that is waiting to be revealed in us. Someday we'll understand. Take comfort in knowing that the suffering you're going through, whether self-inflicted, others inflicted, or God allowed it to happen, is forming in you the way of Christ. It is putting to death in your body the misdeeds of the flesh. If you let it, by the Spirit's power, you're being made new and you're being made alive. Alive like you've never been alive before and alive someday like we can't even imagine. And it's all because of who Jesus is. And it's this time where we can get our communion supplies because we're going to remember him. None of this would be possible without the cross of Christ. None of this would be possible without the empty tomb. And so as we gather the bread that represents the body that was broken, bruised, and torn for our sin, as we take the cup and and the juice that represents the blood that was shed, the blood that brought in a new covenant between a God and people, as we remember Jesus. May we use that time to ask the Spirit to have His way within us, to put to death anything that could be between you and God, anything that you may have been rationalizing as no big deal, anything that you know sin is crouching at the door, and every once in a while you let it in, but then you try to shove it back out again until the next time. Allow the Spirit to work to kill that, to kill that in yourself, and say yes to something way better, life and peace. Let's pray together. God, as we come before you, as we come before this table together, as we remember Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, we're thankful that you've not left us as orphans, but you've given us this family. You've brought us into your family. And our family here is a church. We miss seeing each other. But we are holding on to this idea, this reality, this promise that one day we'll not only see each other in this building on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday, but we'll see each other in your presence for eternity. And it's for that kind of thing we we yearn and 
for that reason that we come before each other here to share the cup, to share the bread, and bless it in our homes. Strengthen us as families and strengthen us by your Spirit to put to death these things in our bodies, these sinful natures that oppose you. Help us to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.